Hi, I'm Ulysses, and this is Music, Meaning, and Mystery Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to explore the mystery of music and valorize it. In this episode, I have a conversation with Tony Kostelik. Tony is a multi-instrumentalist with a proficiency in a wide variety of genres. You can listen to Tony's music at salttheef.com. So you talked to me about how you had performed a concert under restricted conditions due to the issues relating to coronavirus. And um, you had mentioned how it had been, I think at that point, weeks or months since people were in pretty serious isolation. And I remember you trying to communicate to me just how much you realized when you performed that show that people really need music. And I acknowledged your what you were communicating to me, but you were insisting like, no, they really need music. You were trying to communicate something deeper to me. And I'd like you to elaborate on that so I can understand. Yeah, sure. My experience was, this was probably, I have to think back, I think this was in May, perhaps. So this was after the initial round of lockdown. And this point, I don't know if this had been a rollback or this was just like a steady default for in terms of restrictions, but you could only have, I think, 50 per people in a venue and you all had to be spaced like six feet apart or, you know, six or four to a table or something like that. We were out uh, on this kind of a patio stage. It was really, really well set up for it. And it was kind of the only place that was set up in my circles that was set up to do a concert or to have a show. You know, this was in Chilliwack. This was at Tractor Grease. And there are always a really good crowd there. We actually have a nice, a really sweet fan base there, which is wonderful. But there's always new faces. There's always people who are just showing up for the first time. And I really got the sense when we performed that, first of all, I was thirsty for it. I hadn't really done live performances and that at that point in probably like two or three months and I couldn't stop talking about it in between songs I was like I was remarking on how strange it felt to be up there how strange it felt to be so kind of out of shape because we hadn't been doing as much performing and as I kept talking I I couldn't seem to stop myself referencing that in between songs and I could I could see the um you can see the reaction of, of agreement in the crowd that we had. People were really thirsty. I don't really know how else to put it. it. It's like, it definitely struck me more at that show than it really had in any previous show. Like how much people, it's almost like a reliance. Like if you don't have live music for some people or like a, um, like a communal musical experience, then it starts to make you more and more needful of that it really it's you could compare it to like having food or water it was it was yeah and that i I don't really know how much more i can elaborate on it except that it was kind of um it just yeah it was kind of transportive in that sense there was this kind of a more a greater sense of integration of like group consciousness and group consciousness participation it made me sad because i in a way it maybe it's like feel remiss because I mean, how many times have I been at a show where by the end, I knew the people who were there 
could have been doing something else. They didn't necessarily care too much for live music. Sadly, that's kind of a reality that we live in. Or maybe I didn't really care much to be there. I was like tired of doing the thing, you know, because you, you play a set a hundred times, you can start to get a little bored of it. You can start to get a little bit, um, there's all sorts of things you can get, uh, you know, jaded, um, tired, just physically tired, emotionally drained, um, socially drained. That's another big one. But this, you know, this experience that uh, in, in May, it was not that it was definitely a kind of like a submersion, I would say. I interviewed another musician. I think you met. Yeah, you did meet him, uh, Jeff, Jeff Bryant. Mm -hmm. And he used the exact same metaphor as you did uh, the metaphor of thirst. He painted it even more literally. He said that um, he had a similar experience. He got the sense that people were relating to the music as one might a glass of water after being lost in the desert. There's, there is definitely some sort of thirst there, if yeah. you want to call it metaphorical. I would venture to call it spiritual. Yeah. Um, thirst of the spirit, of the human spirit. And it's, it's weird. Honestly, I, I have similar... <laughs> it's so strange what um, you know physical isolation does. I have crazy cravings like I need a cigarette but not to smoke but rather to just go to a bar and drink a couple of glasses of beer by myself or you know be able to walk into a cafe and just surround myself with the noises of like a common calm social atmospheric experience but I can't you know not being able to do that being um, always knowing ever presently that we must limit our, our contact and we must like as, as for me personally, it's, it's, there's no, there's, I, I, I feel thirsty in the same way. It's like, I, I would love to just roll back a year or two and just find myself in a social space, just being totally calm. And even if I was by myself, just enjoying the, um, you know, the bliss that is just a, uh, kind of being among people. Yeah. To be in ceremony with other humans. Yeah. Well, we can roll back a few years. Um, it's something I wanted to talk to you about was the house concert scene. I felt it was something special, but inevitably I felt it had no choice but to be temporary. Why was it better in so many ways than the ambition of the big stage? A really important thing that we must acknowledge in the way that we experience music performance, just music in general, in our culture, it all goes through the medium of this background radiation of capitalism. So if you experience music on a big stage, you're surrounded by money, you're surrounded by transaction, you're surrounded by the, um, the people on the stage have to be good enough to be able to survive to make music so that it can be good music, that it's good enough to be on that stage. This is like a just a really quick summary simplification in the house uh but in the to contrast that in the house music scene the house concert scene you kind of strip away a lot of those layers and you see like a more like people just spend volunteer their time turning a house into a venue cleaning up after it's been a venue for a few hours they open people into their homes. It's not as transactional. Typically, you know, you you pay a cover to play to go to a house concert, but it has this more kind of like unregulated, uncapitalistic structure framework. 
And that, I think that alone unsullies so much of music as we experience it in our culture, basically. Having that refreshing departure from our normal corporatized, hyper-monetized experience of music is, is, is refreshing. And that's also what makes it so fragile and what makes it so, um, so transient, I think because people get tired, they're still swimming in the substrate of capitalism. You know, you can only do so many, you can only host so many house concerts, play so many house concerts before you need to like get a job basically. And that's kind of, that, that ties into why, you know, a band that plays big stages is probably going to be playing for decades and make a, you know, make a decent career out of it. It's because, you know, they're playing in a capitalistically sustainable model, basically. Their music has been monetized to a point of sustainability. And not making a value judgment on that. It's just, it's kind of a question of like, what is the environment in which you're raising, which you're growing your your crops? Like, is it one where you can grow crop after crop or does, do you need to like, I'm not sure what the, do you need to rest the, uh, the soil from time to time and allow, and allow people to recover and basically recharge for, for another experiment into, you know, a, a new, a new series or something else. Charles Eisenstein has an interesting book called Sacred Economy or Sacred Economics. And he talks about the concept of money and community and how a transactional relationship with other human beings ultimately absolves one of the responsibility to be in community Let's say you live in a town where you know your neighbors and you need winter tires for your car. And your neighbor, Joe, says, well, I got a set of winter tires here that are just spare and have been sitting in the garage for a while. You could have those. You could say, okay, great. I'll pay you for them. But why are you saying that? Is it because you're trying, it's, you're trying to avoid being entangled in the obligation of paying it forward or getting to know Tom and his family or saying, or the, the inevitable point in the future where he might need something. So it's kind of like, here's some money. We erase each other, our debt to each yeah. other as human beings. I'm thinking about the communal, communal living, the, the community, the music and community of the house concert where all the people, including the audience, uh, have to participate right. in making the experience good. Because first of all, if they're not there to support the experience, they don't have the experience. Right. Uh, um, if, with a band that has, you know, a uh, hundred thousand fans, well, you know, or or a million fans, the you you specifically don't have to be there because there's a million other fans minus one that can bear yeah. the burden and then like you're talking about like people have to clean up and then there's the whole once the concert is over people are talking and getting to know each other and talking about each other's right. lives and we become entangled and obligated to one another yeah and in that way the the the, the music is occupying a more traditional role it's almost a, a, ba a going back. It's a more conservative way of using music. It's going back to our old human traditions right. where music was used as some sort of like glue of community cohesiveness. No, and I think that 
that was a great example that you started with. And I, I completely agree with this power that music seems to have to make us more amenable to the, the risk. You know, social entanglement, as you described it, is about risk taking, right? If you accept something for free or if you enjoy the, uh, the company of a new friend or acquaintance, you're taking on the risk that you might then later have to like become more invested, more involved. And we like, we like to be able to throw things away. We're a very disposable culture. We like to be able to decide when we've had enough. And we're very bad at negotiating it when two people have a difference of expectation of each other socially or have a difference of expectation of each other in terms of obligation. We're very bad at dealing with that. And that I think leads to a lot of cold shouldering, which is unfortunate. That's not something that you see so much when the music is playing, I think, which is very interesting to note. People are so much more likely to throw themselves at each other and become socially interdependent, which is which is a really gorgeous thing. But something about this, this you described that that was such a great example with borrowing winter tires. This kind of liquid nature of of capital liquid in the sense that you can turn it into anything else, whether it be time or power or whatever of, of, of a similar value, it makes you be able to pay to make people go away. It makes you be able to pay to keep, to stay locked up in your castle if that's what you want. And because that's always a possibility, I think it makes people and our modern convenience in a lot of ways, it just makes us more um, misanthropic. It makes us more isolationist makes us more like conservative in a lot of not so nice ways. We, we become very risk adverse socially. One time you had mentioned that you received a song in dream. How did it feel to have that dream? Tell me about your emotions when you had that dream and then subsequently how why did you decide to do something about that and how you went about it? Right. That's a really good question. So I, um, and this is not the only time that I've had an idea or a musical snippet come to me in a dream. This was an, a good example of that idea being like very crystallized, even though it was kind of molecular. I had a couple lines of music and it came to me as fully fleshed out. Like I could hear, I think I was hearing as though it was a recording playing on the radio or on a tape deck or something, I hear the song and in my dream, my consciousness dreamlike or waking or otherwise is hard to separate in those, you know, kind of interstitial moments when you're just kind of waking up or when you're restless, which this was, was the case for me. I was kind of like drifting in and out of consciousness in some deep hour of the night. I hear in crystal form, this couple few seconds of song in my consciousness, dreamlike or otherwise, I recognize the tune I recognize it as a great song, something that I enjoy and that I that I highly approve of. And then you you start to drift into wakefulness and you realize that you are dreaming. And my first reaction is one of like feeling robbed. And this is a really common reaction, I think, for myself, maybe a lot of people from waking up from a dream state, is you feel like you're robbed of that, that dream reality, that sensation or whatever it is. For me, it was being robbed of like being robbed of the recognition of this, this song, this, the being robbed of what's this, this nostalgia, basically. I feel like because that happens so often when we wake up, this is one of the reasons why we like to forget dreams shortly after we wake up is because we feel defensive about our loss of reality in a, in a way, our naivety for believing in our, our dream realities. This might just be my experience. Perhaps if, if you are more 
if you're a better dreamer, if you journal, if you explore, meditate, as soon as you wake up, you probably can overcome this. I get defensive. I become, I get this feeling of being shorted, you know, this delicious pastry that I was eating in my dream when I woke up or this, you know, a conversation with somebody who's dead or who I haven't seen in, in a long time. I feel robbed that that's something that I can't actually experience in waking life. But in this one instance, I, you know, I thought about it and I thought of how special it was that I spontaneously created this, this great song, which I believe to be like objectively a great song in my head. So without going back to sleep, I thought about it. I made sure that I kind of contained that little crystalline fragment that was complete with lyrics and with kind of accompaniment to the chord structure and had this kind of mood, this kind of uh, theme about it. But I very quickly started, especially when, you know, morning came, um, I started writing out the rest of the song that would naturally fit around it and just trying to, as much as possible, believe how that is real to whatever reality I was experiencing when I first heard the song in a dream state. So it feels almost like you're it's like having one composer finish the work of another composer who died halfway through writing it. Like you have to believe in the, um, in the inspiration. You have to breathe out of that inspiration what, what naturally follows. So I finished, I wrote the rest of the song around it. And I um, probably the only real example I can think of where I, I really fully followed that kernel from inception in a dream straight in dream state all the way to its completion and it feels super good i will say that if you if you are similarly possessed by inspiration in your dream i think and you are worried about feeling robbed it's a good exercise to make sure that you're not to go ahead and pursue that inspiration until its logical conclusion it was sort of like thrust upon you you were sort of inflicted with this thing in a way mm the way to resolve it was to follow is to follow it through somehow. Yeah. Let me ask you something. Do you have a soundtrack to your just like normal baseline consciousness? Hmm. Well, in a sense, I think there is, if I think about it, um, when I meditate, I'll hear, I'll hear a hum that's, somehow overlaid with the rhythm of breath and heartbeat is that i'm assuming you're asking me that because it's an experience that you have yeah i didn't want to like overly frame it and, and make it a leading question but I'm, I'm very curious about this because this is something that i experience maybe 75 percent of my kind of normal consciousness maybe more like i feel like i always have some kind of a snippet going in my head and I would love in a lot of sense, I think I feel like the grass is greener and I would love it if my baseline conscious soundtrack was meditative and was, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Uh, uh, just, just kind of background. Like ambient? Ambient, thank you. Um, I would love for it to be something ambient, but for me, it's always like pretty molecular and pretty active and pretty prone to like falling into short loops and it could be pretty disjointed and energetic. And it's almost like, it's almost like something sharp, just like poking into my brain all the time. And I can kind of like, if I feel like my brain, my consciousness stands perfectly still and closes its eyes, I can stop it. But if I like turn my head the wrong way or if the wind shifts or something, then it's like, it's full blast very quickly. I know that, um, Tchaikovsky, who's a, um, a Russian kind of late romantic composer, he was, and I don't think this is super uncommon at all yeah, among composers or even otherwise, but he was said to have always having melodies in his head. And he, he was, when he was a kid, he was like, 
frustrated and was like cry was tearful because he couldn't he couldn't escape this it was kind of like living with pain or living with some sort of like some sort of a disability or something but it was all it was was just like an overly active musical consciousness that just runs in the background i don't know it reminds me of a meditation technique where you engage with the, your mind chatter as if they're individual people um, hmm. as if you're made of a legion of people so you're you're the person who wants a sandwich who has a nake in their knee who has a sexual urge who is worried about his financial future and all of those things are not you like each of those things is a different you right in, in and of itself and to listen to those those uh, different people and mm -hmm. hear them out so that they feel heard and then eventually they quiet down because they know that you're giving them an audience and right. it kind of reminds me of the dream and uh it's it does kind of square well with the the shamanic model of yeah. of the animistic perspective on music yeah there's a lot of zen current giving the go ahead Sorry, I got a little bit of latency, so I, I just decided not to speak. But uh, yeah, um, you have a lot of kind of Zen currency there as well. Um, this idea that you are not your thoughts and you are separate from them. But if you start to push them away and actively silence them, you just kind of give them more power over you. You, you. you basically, you become more kind of in control and more calm by allowing your, your thoughts to speak to you and then allow them to pass like water. I wonder if that's at all related to the phenomenon of the zone in music. Mm. Um, when you're playing, usually with other people, uh, you you may hit you you may hit a zone where you're all operating very well. You feels like you're on the same frequency. Everything's flowing. There's no effort. Um, kind of reminds me a little bit of what you're saying, where um, if you can achieve a a state of having heard all of the things that need to be heard, then you can kind of let, let, let it all kind of flow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that's something maybe a little bit different. I don't know if this is something that happens in our brain chemistry, or if this is something that's like spiritual in, in uh, substance, but this uh, becoming part of not be, like allowing the ego to kind of fade back and simply becoming part of the fabric of consciousness you see this all the time in like funk or in jazz when people are just they their egos just disappear so that they become a, a well-oiled machine of creativity and uh and performance and and instrumental acumen or whatever whatever you want to call it that's a definitely a very dope experience and i personally my my favorite experience of that sort is singing singing with other people whatever it is you get that feeling of for me i always sing my best when i'm singing with others i have you know greater range, greater vocal control, better experience. I'm like given more joy, more dopamine and oxytocin by singing with other people. And I, I yeah, I mean, this is something that's also been kind of explored to the nth degree, but um, yeah, that, that, uh, that being in the zone. Um, yeah. I can, I, I appreciate and agree with how you're connecting it to this, uh, this idea of, of uh, consciously kind of stepping back and allowing the, uh, allowing other things to exist within your consciousness that are non-self and then becoming a little bit more of a, of an integrated fabric member. I think that definitely tracks. 
Now, you once told me that uh, music was the only thing or one of the only things that is allowed still to be spontaneously meaningful. Can you tell me more about how music is spontaneously meaningful? I think that sounds to me like I was talking about how I feel like when I listen to certain things in music, it's like hearing certain like facts about the world that I live in. It just like I'm just immediately brought to tears, even though if it might be something totally, totally mundane or a song I've heard a hundred times, or if it's hearing for the millionth time that there's winds whipping through the valleys of Mars at half the speed of sound, it just it makes my hair stand on end and it makes a tear come to my eye. And that that meaning is kind of non-specific sometimes. Like it's sort of like nostalgia. It's sort of like bliss, but it's really neither of those things. It's it's just like kind of pure emotional inspiration that um, music is one of these things that has that ability is to just give this kind of non-specific emergent meaning spontaneously and you and people who are even even people who are not creative people who are not inspired people they can they can very quickly become kind of ensorcelled by this property of music and again this is another one of those things where i i don't know if you can place this at the um functional brain chemistry level or if this is something spiritual in in uh in essence but it's um yeah it's just one of those it's just one of those things that seems to be kind of both totally human and also totally transcendent. Maybe that's part of why it has the power to bring people together because, and why the the winds on Mars doesn't. The, in order to be moved by the speed of the wind on Mars, one must understand Mars and, and the, what the speed of sound is and have a clear concept of it. Whereas music is immediate, it imports emotions or rather it exports emotions into the community that can be all shared spontaneously. We all know that we have roughly, you know, the same emotions. At right. Least we're, we're in the same zone of emotion. You might not have the same emotional reaction to something, to a piece of music that I have, even though we're both like taken by it and we're ensorcelled by it. The funny thing is though, this is an inherent property of music that is shared by seemingly all people. Um, it's almost as though we all are inborn with the software to to understand the the code basically. Whereas something like the hair raising effect that some you know just the scale of the universe and of the the galaxies we live in, or the scale of an electron orbiting a, a, a proton, like those things, maybe you don't, maybe someone else doesn't have the software to, to kind of get that hair raising, that kind of ins inspiration, that emotional effect from. I don't, I'm not emotionally inspired or spiritually inspired by, you know, knitting a glove, but I'm sure to some people that, you know, being able to manifest uh, an object out of just you know, thread and, and needles is just something that's also transcendent in its own way. But seemingly everyone has this ability to respond to music. Maybe not all music in the same way, maybe not a single piece of music to two different people, the same content, but it seems to be in the same language, the same programmatic code, which to mm -hmm. me is just, it's makes it, it's one of those things that if there is an argument for the existence of, you know, the spirit or that we're living in a simulation, this is one of the aberrant properties in our in observable experience or observable uni universe that points towards that possibility. In other words, that it is otherworldly. You said like a, we're born with the software was the metaphor you used and it's quite literal. It's, this is not a learned skill. Nobody learns 
to make a connection to music. It's just there. It would be very strange to encounter a person who would say, I've never felt any emotions when listening to music ever. We wouldn't <laughs> right? worry about that, that person. Would be a very yeah. strange thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Hmm. Interesting. Now, you're a musician of something of a rare breed, I find. You've participated in a pretty wide variety of genres. I know you've done gamelan music. You are a folk, rock, pop musician. You've were active in a barbershop quartet for a time. You played in experimental uh, drone projects as a throat singer. I don't want. I don't want to like get psycho psychological about it. Like, oh, what does that say about you as a person? I want to know what it feels like to inhabit those worlds that are kind of alien to one another. Oh, you've also played uh, in a classical uh, in a classical setting. Yeah. So, what is that? Not so much like what the different peoples are like and what the challenges are. I want to know how it feels to be in those different musics. I should probably start by saying I think there is a polymodality to those experiences. Like the context is somewhat important. I don't necessarily think that your experience playing in music is always universally similar or of the same stuff. Like for example, in orchestras, I uh, was always playing for a living. And also in orchestras, there's this incredible attention to detail and to, um, it's kind of like work in a lot of senses where you are doing something that you have to attempt to do without making error. Part and parcel to that is that this music is fully through composed and it's just, you're delivered the music as a set of instructions. You have to just perform you know, the instructions essentially. Whereas something like Gamelon is way more meditative. Um, it's way more playful, I think. It's way more childlike. And I would say ditto to um, goofball folk singing or ambient uh you know drone music and improvisation that sort of stuff what i like to rely on is how similar all these experiences can be when um when you are allowed to relax and kind of fall into the role of especially group music making i feel like this kind of this childlike open-minded open-hearted experience of i want to see what you're doing and how you're doing it and maybe i can learn how to do it i can copy you and I can, we can build something together, this kind of curiosity and this kind of sense of, of like communal bliss and pride and, uh, and like joint, joint effort and joint creation. That's something that I, I find should, it can and should be common to basically any, any musical experience worth having. And with that in mind, it's, it's so fascinating how, you know, and there's a lot of um, musicians like this, like Frank Zappa, for example, where you, if you are as good as you are in at a certain level of proficiency in any sort of microcosm of music, you, you kind of become a bit of a savant in any other part of music as well. You might have your, your, you know, limitations in one, in one area or another, but you become kind of like a fluent, like a polylingual linguist in a music sense. You can learn very quickly as long as you have an open mind and as long as you have this kind of childlike kind of curiosity and and and, and re relaxation. Really anything that you can see done musically or you can imagine you can you can make happen as long as you are as long as you are open to like the magic flowing through you. 
and provided you have like the the right people kind of acting as companions and guides. And that I've just been extremely lucky, you know, in all the different things that I've done almost to a, to a T I've had people around me who were either super talented and super good, or they're also just like super willing to, to explore. And really that's all it is. Even if you're not talented, even if you, you're not proficient or you're, you're a novice, that willingness to, to explore and create that's like more powerful than any number of hours cooped up practicing technique, more important than an ability to read a chord chart or a set of musical notation. Traditional closing question for this podcast. What should people listen to? You bastard. <laughs> uh, you know, I think people should listen to what excites them. And I think that it's really easy to fall into a place where we don't consciously make attempts, especially nowadays with things like Spotify or letting YouTube run on autoplay or however you, whatever your method of, of putting music on is. I think, uh, and especially now that there's, there's, it's kind of harder and harder, it seems to like listen to live music uh, in a sustainable way or to perform live music, especially in small venues, it becomes really um, easy to just allow yourself to listen to music kind of on autopilot. And maybe that's, that's a goal for a lot of people. I've definitely, I, you know, I have my music that I listen to when I'm cleaning the kitchen for sure. But I think for me personally, it, I, I get the soul sickness. It's like an itch that I've scratched to the point where it's become an open wound. I need to like do something open-minded with my musical listening in order to like dislodge the the thrombus that is you know a stale loop that is that has run its course of usefulness so yeah i i would just i hope that people keep their minds open they try new stuff all the time because you know that's you 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 have the language it it exists you know this is if somebody has made it it's because they also speak the language and you can you can hear it too um and don't always don't always listen to the same songs. There's a there's a whole world out there. We'll never be able to listen to it all. So why spend too much time focusing in one corner? There's a pattern that emerged in the last three episodes, I think. Sue learned from masters of her craft and in turn became a master in her own right and mentored others. I see in this an intergenerational community that she participates in. Jeff experienced a sacred moment of being in ceremony with others through music and Tony also experienced this in the house concert scene and at the Tractor Grease Cafe. There's a sense here that music is the great craft of connecting people to each other. I feel a mix of emotions. I feel gratitude and pride of being part of this legacy. But I also feel sadness and grief that there are outside pressures that stifle and threaten this great legacy and threaten the human ceremony. My reflex is to end with the thought of hope or faith, and I do have such thoughts, 
but I think it's important to feel the grief to sit with it because what is not fully grieved cannot fully heal.